Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Markets and Morality, our IA show where we explore contradicting opinions within the classical liberal free market tent. I will be your host, Adam Bartha, the head of international outreach here at the IA. Today's topic is pretty close to my heart. As someone from a country that was freed from a 45-year-long Russian occupation just two years before my birth, I definitely feel a lot of solidarity towards our Ukrainian friends. But I'm also well aware that the historical judgment is still very much up in the air regarding the most effective methods when it when it comes to dealing with aggressors in the sphere of international relations. As you know, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict has been ongoing for a decade, with over 10,000 lives lost and tremendous economic damage inflicted. It was obvious for a while now that the Minsk ceasefire agreements did not deliver the long-standing peace that many were hoping for. Russia is gathering its troops on the border of Ukraine, and many Western nations are increasing their arms supply to the Ukrainian government as well. So the perennial question of international relations remains. Is appeasement or escalation the best way to solve the conflict? So our discussion will aim to answer the question, what is the best classical liberal response to Russia today? And in order to address this challenging task, I have the great pleasure to welcome two classical liberals to the discussion, both for whom I have tremendous respect for. Dr. Steve Davis is a colleague of mine here at the Institute of Economic Affairs, leading our education outreach. Um, Steve is a historian by profession who has joined the IA from the Institute of Humane Studies at George Mason University in Virginia. And Steve has authored several books, including Empiricism and History, and the wealth explosion. I'm also delighted to welcome Dr. Delabor Rohaj to the discussion, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Delabor is an expert in European political and economic trends, especially in Central and Eastern European ones. And before his current role, Delabor was affiliated with the Cato Institute in DC and the Legatum Institute here in London. Gentlemen, welcome. It's great to have you both on board. Delighted to be here. Great to be with you. Steve, uh, you have published a recent eye video that caused quite a bit of uproar in free market circles, especially amongst our Central East, Eastern European friends. Um, in the video, you have mentioned that the long-term reason for the current tensions between Ukraine and Russia is, I quote, an incredibly foolish and misguided policy by the Western Alliance by NATO, the US, and the EU towards Ukraine in the last decade. You have mentioned that the expansion of NATO is breaking an agreement with Russia, which makes them feel threatened. Classical liberals, on the other hand, constantly emphasize individual self-determination, and they often kind of extrapolate that um, to national self-determination as well. So based on that logic, surely a lot of the Central Eastern European countries that voluntarily joined NATO in recent decades um, should be supported by classical liberals. Or is that 
attitude too naive? Is national self-determination irrelevant when it comes to international relations? Uh, well, let me say right at the start that I don't accept the dichotomy you kicked off by introducing between appeasement or, uh, if you like, counter-aggression. I think that's a false dichotomy. I, I think that there, there are other ways to be correct, but we might come to that later on. In terms of this, I think that I don't actually accept the idea that individual sovereignty naturally or logically extends to the principle of national self-determination. I think that was one of the great historic errors of liberalism, in fact. Now, in terms of the specific situation of Ukraine, um, one of the basic rules of life is you don't get into a fight if you are not prepared to follow through with it. If you go into a pub and you pick a fight with an aggressive and violent person, you'd better be prepared and able to stand up uh, and you know face down the person you've, you've picked a fight with, the bully. Uh, if not, you're going to either get, get beaten up or, or even worse, somebody else is going to get beaten up. Uh, because of what you've done, uh, or you're going to be humiliated. And that is the situation the West is in with Ukraine. It was clear as early as the 2004 Bucharest NATO summit that Ukraine and Georgia were not going to become members of NATO at any time in the foreseeable future, because Germany and a number of other countries would veto any such accession. Now, when they were confronted with that reality, what the Americans and the State Department uh, should have done is to say, well, okay, this means that, you know, for the foreseeable future, uh, NATO is not going to expand any further. And they should have made that a public uh, statement. Instead, what they did was to say that, okay, NATO, Ukraine can join NATO, but not just yet, a kind of St. Augustine uh, view of Ukraine's status. And that was just incredibly foolish, because they said this knowing that there was no chance that Ukraine would be allowed to join NATO. But at the same time, uh, they annoyed and upset the Russians, for whom Ukraine, for historic and other reasons, is a vital strategic interest. And they gave people in Ukraine a kind of false hope, if you will. And in terms of international relations, this is my final comment, I have to say, unfortunately, international relations is not a sphere of human affairs in which principles, liberal or otherwise, have any real play. It is, and always has been, in my view, a sphere of relations which is governed ultimately by things like geography, power, and national self-interest, or to be more precise, the self-interest of the ruling classes that control parts of the planet's surface. And in that context, is Russia prepared to engage in very risky behavior over Ukraine, maybe even a war? Well, yes, clearly, because they're doing it. Is the United States prepared to go to war over Ukraine in response to that? No, it's not, because Ukraine is not a vital interest for the United States. The Germans and other key players like France have made it clear they're not prepared to do it. So the fall guys in all this are U the Ukrainians who've been, quite frankly, hung out to dry uh, by the West, which has got itself into a position like the one I started off by talking about, you know, going into a pub, picking a fight with the boorish, aggressive, unpleasant person in the pub, and then not being prepared or able to follow through with what they've started. So whether we like it or not, basically classical liberals need to accept that might is right in the sphere of international In the sphere of IR, yes. I mean, uh, the point is, I do not think that classical liberals um, should accept that might is always going to be right. I think one of the long-term projects of classical liberalism is in fact to transform the nature of international relations. But what you realistically have to accept and recognize is that that would require a major transformation 
of the way in which politics is organized away from sovereign territorial states of the kind that we're familiar with. And that's not going to happen anytime soon. As long as the world is divided into sovereign territorial states, IR is going to be the realm of might is right. Sure. Dalibor, well, what do you think about the NATO expansion and the promises that were made by Western powers? Obviously, you were born in Central Europe and Slovakia, but you have lived in the United States for a pretty long time. Yeah. And to many libertarians in the U.S., NATO is an expansionist project, a kind of an empire building project, if you like. Um, but to many of us in Central Eastern Europe, it's more of a peace building project and is seen often by a positive light because traditionally it was Russia that was the aggressor rather than the United States. So how do you actually assess the role of NATO and Western interventionism in kind of accelerating the Russian skepticism towards the West that Steve has been talking about? Well, first of all, I want to say that I both um, agree and disagree with Steve on, on two fundamental points. Um, the point I certainly agree with is that if you are at a risk of you know, picking a fight with a bully, you'd better carry a big stick and be determined to follow through on you know on your on your on your on your commitments uh the point i disagree with is the notion that in the sphere of international relations or foreign policy uh, principles and norms are irrelevant uh i disagree with that latter point because uh those principles and norms are actually relevant insofar as somebody is willing to stand up for them and i think what is at stake in this crisis is indeed this question of whether the West at large, United States and its European allies are willing to stand up for uh, a you know, rules-based order, if you will, that has existed in Europe you know, in, in, in the wake of, of Helsinki Final Act uh, that you know, has been sort of re reiterated in the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 that Russia co-signed, uh, or whether we are really going to revert to more of a state of nature situation in which indeed might makes right. Um, now on this question of NATO expansion, one very brief historical point. Um, it is very often invoked that uh, in 1990, the United States made a promise to uh, the Soviet Union at the time not to expand NATO uh, any, any further. And there are you know, these quotes from Secretary Baker, Secretary Baker, who was in Moscow talking to Gorbachev uh, that, that gets sort of invoke, invoked and, and it is said that uh, that promise has been broken later on. Now, that conversation that happened in February of 1990 happened under very particular circumstances. There was, all, there was still Soviet Union in existence. Uh, countries of the, of the sort of Soviet bloc were still part of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, you know, Czechoslovakia hadn't even had a free election at that point. So this question of expanding NATO to the east was completely out of the question. And in fact, Gorbachev himself later admitted, went on record saying that uh, the conversation that they had was very narrowly about the situation in Germany, about, about the, you know, what would happen after the reunification of Germany in terms of American presence in, 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 in the country. A uh, few years later, 1993, October, uh, Secretary Warren Christopher went to Moscow, had a very different conversation with, with Boris Yeltsin, and uh, <clears throat> which, which didn't go down particularly well at that point. But it has to be said that throughout the 1990s, NATO expansions were 
not framed in any sort of way as anti-Russian moves. I mean, they went hand in hand. Uh, you know, first of all, they were, as you said, demand driven. It was not the Americans who were keen to enlarge somehow the sphere of influence in Europe to the east. I mean, they were very reluctant to, 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 to proceed with, with NATO enlargements. It was, you know, the Czechs and the Hungarians and the Balts who wanted to, to get in, both because they suspected that Russia might arise one day as a revanchist power, but also because they saw that being part of these Western political structures uh, provided stability and, and had a sort of pacifying influence uh, that was, for example, absent in, in the Balkans. Now, when NATO did expand, all of that went in hand in hand with an open door policy, which made it explicit at various junctures that actually NATO membership would be open to countries, including Russia. Uh, partnership for peace was created to bring Russians in in, in, in some capacity. NATO-Russia Council was, was created as a form of sort of bilateral uh, forum to, 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 to coordinate, exchange information, make sure that the Russians were, were on board. Uh, the expansion of G7 to include Russia, uh, completely out of proportion to, to Russia's economic role, was also made as a as a sort of conciliatory move. So, so this idea that NATO has been sort of aggressively expanding to to, to Russian borders and somehow has been threatening Russia is is I, I think historically wrong. And and more importantly, in this current Ukrainian crisis, you know, it's worth remembering that in 2014. You know, it wasn't the question of NATO expansion or or anything to do with with, with American yeah. foreign policy that 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 was that was that was that was at play, but it rather it was, you know, a domestic sort of political crisis triggered by by Yanukovych's reneging on an association agreement with with the European Union. Steve, you have mentioned that these people were let down by the West. They were there to hang and you know promises made to them that the West can't possibly deliver. So what do you think the right attitude is of Western European leaders and US leaders? Um, they shouldn't have promised NATO membership or they shouldn't have kept that open door policy in general, or they should have kind of addressed the Russian concerns earlier on and that could have avoided the escalation of the crisis in a way well they should have been more nimble really or adaptable because i think the the historical account dalibor gave that is actually correct um but what is missing from it is of course the fact that as he says initially nato membership is open to russia uh, but then things change in russia and i think what has happened is that the west has not reacted uh, correctly to that now what um what happened at the end of the Cold War was that the West, if you like, the United States and the EU, and it's important to say the EU in this, embarked upon a kind of joint project to which the nature of NATO as an alliance was transformed, because NATO had previously been essentially an alliance which was about connecting the security interests of Western Europe and the United States uh, through the Article 5 and other arrangements uh, to, you know, prevent Soviet expansionism. Now the Soviet Union has collapsed, it's no longer longer there so what do you make of it and it was turned into the centerpiece or one of the instruments for a new american policy and also a EU policy which was that of liberal expansionism if you like expanding things like the kind of international institutions rule-bound order that dalibor's talking about uh into parts of the world which had not previously enjoyed them such as 
your native Hungary or uh, you know Slovakia, uh, the, the other former Warsaw Pact countries, and indeed other parts, countries in the Caucasus, arguably, for example. Now, that project, I myself, I, I have nothing wrong with that. And I, I think that that, in a way, was a worthwhile project. The problem was that it, the foreign policy advocates in both Brussels and Washington did not uh, take account of the fact that it, it might provoke opposition. And of course, it did provoke opposition because what actually happened, and I don't think necessarily because of this, I think more for internal reasons, was a political shift within Russia with the rise of Putin and the faction around him after Yeltsin's uh, period in power came to an end, uh, which was not exactly revanchist, but concerned, amongst other things, with reasserting tradition, very traditional Russian great power interests, but also, more damagingly and dangerously, with a quite increasingly vocal and aggressive anti-liberal politics. Because, to make my own position clear, I'm, I'm not in any sense a fan of uh, Putin or the regime of which he is the head. Um, it's a kleptocracy. Uh, of an almost pure sort. But in addition to that, it's not only a bad regime, it's a hostile regime, if you're a liberal or the West, because it's a regime which is quite explicitly anti-liberal in its foundational assumptions, and which is doing all kinds of stuff to try and undermine uh, the rules-based political order that Dalibor's talking about, uh, of which I'd add, by the way, real rule-based international order is better than the Bismarckian world of right is right, but fundamentally it rests upon that world. Because these international rules, as long as you have sovereign states, they are essentially voluntary agreements. By definition, a sovereign state cannot be bound by all those rules unless it is prepared to do it. Now, what I think the... Um, West should have done around about 2004, 2005, is realize uh, that they were in a different position and that they would have to rethink their strategy, really, uh, and probably pause the NATO expansionism at the point at which it had got and think about taking a different tack uh, if they want to pursue the goal of consolidating uh, liberalism in the areas to which it spread and hopefully expanding it into other parts of Eurasia. But they didn't do that. They pushed on as though nothing had changed. And that was why they now found themselves in the mess they're in, where, you know, as Talibor says, you need, if you get in a fight, you need a big stick. And they haven't got a big stick. Well, they have, but they're not prepared to use it because it's the Americans who have the big stick, uh, not the Europeans, mm -hmm. and they're not prepared to use it at all. So we've got ourselves into a mess, really, and we need to think very seriously about how we're going to do this. And as I say, the Ukrainians, the unfortunate Ukrainians, have already had to put up with, like, as you said in your start, 10 years of, uh, you know, not, um, well, supposedly covert, but actually open incursions and smashing up their, you know, their economy in eastern provinces, they're now uh, confronted with uh, an even worse prospect in front of them. So we, we made some, the, the West, we made some serious errors. It's worth saying, by the way, and at that point at the end of Dallas is very crucial here, it's not just NATO. In fact, if anything, I think Putin and the ruling class or ruling clique gangster group in Russia are more worried about the EU and expansion of the EU into uh, places like Ukraine and the Caucasus, perhaps, than they are about NATO as such. There's a lot of talk about NATO mm. um, because that plays well with the Russian public. But I think it's actually the expansion of the EU and what it represents that they're more worried about. Uh, obviously, we would rather that uh, you know Ukraine could fully join the EU, or indeed Russia could, in that, in that, for that matter. That would be Charles de Gaulle's goal. Sure. sure. The thing I mean, is, these are some of the... 
Sure, sure. These are some of the underlying structural issues that you have mentioned as reason for the conflict, but I'm also interested in some of the practicalities. So um, as, as, as we have discussed, it has been ongoing for eight years now, but in 2015, there was a ceasefire agreement. The Minsk agreement basically was accepted both by Russia and Ukraine, and they were hoping for it to be somewhat long-lasting. Now, it didn't turn out that way, and I'm interested in your, your reasons why. Um, Dalibor, first of all, to you, um, Ukraine also promised some pretty difficult reforms in that ceasefire agreement, namely some sort of decentralization of the country, which hasn't really happened. So Russia is obviously blaming the Ukrainian side, whereas the Ukrainian side is explaining that Russia didn't pull back their own forces and also didn't capture the agreement. So which side is more to blame or you know, are, are they actually equally bad in delivering uh, the concrete agreements of, of, of the Minsk Accord? I think one important uh, part of the conversation that we have really pushed somewhat to the side thus far is Ukraine itself and the agency of Ukrainians themselves yeah. over their own affairs. Uh, and I think it's been sort of implicit in, in what we what we've discussed because, you know, what happened on the Maidan, what happened with the um, EU association agreement, was really uh, a domestic Ukrainian effort to have a normal, well-functioning, not mafia-run kleptocracy, but a normal, well-functioning country. And and actually, that is exactly the one thing that Vladimir Putin can't bear. To have a country that's partly Russian-speaking, that's at Russia's doorstep, that provides uh, a stark counterfactual to the way how affairs are are run with with Russia. So, 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 so I think that's that's a sort of an element of 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 of, of this whole story that's far more important than what the West did or didn't do, or or you know mistakes done in the 1990s or 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 or, or, or the noughties. Now to the the question of the Minsk agreements and and why they haven't really sorted this thing out. Uh, I've been very critical of the Minsk agreements. The negotiations, you know, you could say that from the outset this was a sort of French and German uh, ego trip, which you know Ukraine was strong-handed into accepting the terms, uh, and the terms basically were going to hand Putin pretty much what he was going to trying to get from 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 the outset uh it's not the first scheme of this sort in 2003 russians went to moldova to sort out the crisis in transnistria and through the so-called kozak memorandum they they tried to urge the moldovan government to accept sort of federalization of the country that would effectively give russians veto power over <coughs> moldovan politics and this was almost exactly the same sort of thing except it had the backing of of western powers and moreover the west used its leverage through you know the imf programs etc to 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 get ukrainians partly uh, in compliance yet as you say ukrainians are very reluctant to to move ahead with the constitutional reforms uh because that would effectively mean giving veto power over their own politics to to russia uh Ukrainians don't control these people's republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, yet these people's republics would now send the members of parliament to the Verkhovna Rada. They would have a say in Ukrainian politics, depending on how this would be structured. You know, this could really turn Ukraine into, into a failed state 
and, and that's exactly what, what, what Putin is trying to achieve, to, to have this sort of free reign in Ukraine, to sort of destroy Ukraine as a self-governing uh, free nation through, you know, so-called uh, republics that, that he set up set up in these. So, so I perfectly understand the Ukrainian reluctance to, to move ahead with, 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 with the Minsk terms. Uh, I think a frozen conflict uh, from, from the Ukrainian perspective and from the perspective of the West as well, I think is preferable to, 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 to the Minsk terms. Uh, might be an unpopular thing to say, but, but I'll say it, <laughs> say it nonetheless. Uh, and I actually do worry that the most likely outcome at this, at this juncture is, is that Ukrainians will be indeed strong-handed into accepting some, ver some version of, of Minsk uh, with consequences that we can, we can discuss. Sure. Steve, are you equally critical against the French-German kind of agreement that was fostered between Russia and Ukraine? I mean, recently, Macron has his own trip to visit Putin and visit Zelensky um, and continue the discussions within the Weimar Triangle Circle, so with his German and Polish counterparts. Is he trying to repeat or is he repeating the same mistakes of 2015? Is it kind of for a media stunt or is Macron actually one of the few statesmen who might be able to actively shape the continent's geopolitics and, and come up with some feasible results? Well, um, I think Emmanuel Macron has his own particular geopolitical vision, which he thinks this is a chance to advance. I'll say more about that in a second. I think that... It's obvious, I mean, obviously what Dalibor says is correct in terms of the fact that the Ukrainians, who, as he very rightly says, have their own agency in all this, uh, do not um, like the Minsk Accords. It's worth saying that up until Maidan, um, the, all of the evidence of things like elections was that Ukraine was actually a deeply divided society, split between basically the West and the central area around Kiev, and the East, the Donbass, and also Novorossiya, as the Russians like to call it, the area of the Black Sea literal. The indications that we have at the moment, interestingly, are that Putin's behavior and the you know incursions into the two Eastern provinces have actually caused a big population, a shift of opinion, I should say, within Ukraine. And that Ukraine is actually probably more pro-Western United in terms of its popular sentiment than it was at the time of Maidan or just before it, when I, I think it's pretty clear from the evidence that it was a deeply, almost evenly split uh, society. So he may have worked against his own interest there. Unfortunately, this is a case where being a, you know, a country that's in between competing power blocks means that your national sovereignty and ability to decide what you do is severely restricted. The fact is that although the Ukrainians themselves did not want these constitutional reforms that were part of Minsk II, they were forced to accept them. They have signed up to them, even if they haven't yet uh, done it. Um, the fund, where does it come from? As you and Dalwell says, it's from France and Germany. And that reflects the geopolitical reality, which is that France and Germany are not going to be prepared to walk the walk when it comes to supporting uh, Ukraine against Russia right now. That's why they blocked NATO membership at Bucharest in 2004. And th therefore, this is the kind of deal they want, which would basically make Ukraine a buffer state. The deal they're looking for is one in which Ukraine becomes a federalized buffer or Finlandized state, referring back to Finland's Cold War status, a neutral country between NATO and the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, 
on which would not be allowed to join NATO, would not be allowed to join the EU, but on the other hand, would also be guaranteed independence from Russia. That's the kind of deal. Now, I think uh, it's a brutal reality for Ukrainians that they have to accept that. They have agency, but their agency, because of their geographical location, is limited. Uh, it's limited by what their powerful neighbours, the Germans and uh, the Russians, want. That's always been the problem with being in that part of Europe. The Poles can tell you all about that. Uh, and the, 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 what they need to do is find a way amongst themselves of making the best of that situation. There are actually advantages to being a buffer state. Um, it does mean you maybe don't get your first choice, but you can do other things you can do with it. Now, in terms of the actual reason why it hasn't mentioned being done, I think um, it's a bit like the situation where you have two people, both of whom have a dead man switch. Um, and the, the, the ideal is that they'll both turn their bomb off at the same time. But of course, you don't want to be the person who turns off your switch and the other person then, you know, uh, sets off the bomb that kills you. And so the, the Russians are saying, from their point of view, is like extremely cynical, but makes sense that they're not prepared to stop supplying the so-called rebels in uh, the two eastern Donbass provinces until the constitutional reforms are nailed down. The Ukrainians, again, perfectly understandably, say they're not prepared to rewrite their constitution until they know that there's no Russian direct involvement in East Ukraine, for the kind of reasons Alvor said. Uh, so that's the problem. That suggests that the way to break it is for a third party, which would probably be the EU, to intervene uh, and to basically oversee a process by which the constitutional reform takes place while simultaneously, which is always the dif difficulty in these two dead man switch standoffs, uh, Russian, direct Russian you know, presence in the Donbass is, is removed. Now, would Putin agree to that? He probably, he might well do, because uh, although he's doing all this incredibly vigorous saber rattling, and I think in push came to shove, he might just be mad enough to invade Ukraine. He obviously would prefer not to do it because the the financial and other consequences would be very, very severe sure. uh, and not to be sneezed sure. at. Uh, so he'd rather not do it. Will Macron pull this deal off? Who knows? He may well do. It depends on how, how much he can tell and persuade Putin and the Russians that he can deliver um, a settlement that would satisfy um, you know, Putin enough that he's got some at least of what he wants. Now, why is Macron doing it? Well, it's because I think he has a wider geopolitical vision. And his wider geopolitical vision is that the rules-bound order you mentioned is bad, gradually breaking down and it's being replaced by a world of competing civilizations, if you will, with China as a civilizational state. And a crucial part of this vision is the notion that there's an increasing divergence of interests and ideology even between the United States and Europe. Uh, that's one of the reasons why he's very keen on Europe having its own military force. And he's moving towards the idea that therefore what there needs to be is not a rapprochement with Russia, but a kind of calming down of the current standoff so that the um, West Europe in the EU can go ahead and do the kind of institution building project he's interested in without having to worry about uh, things kicking off in the Caucasus or uh, the central part of Europe. So that's his geopolitical strategy and, and doing a deal with Putin, if you will, to uh, not exactly divide Gaul into three parts, but um, as I say, sort of solid, solidify Ukraine's status as a buffer state is probably what he sees being a necessary step for doing that.
Sure. Um, Dalibor, is, is that approach the right one that Macron is taking? Do you think that by the whole nation building process within the EU um, is going to help the European Union to become a more important geopolitical player? And if so, at what price? Because you have already mentioned that during the Minsk agreements, it was basically a win for Russia, a win for Putin. But since the Minsk agreement, um, Putin came up with new demands right? He demanded that there is no further NATO expansion whatsoever. He demanded that the NATO deployments should be pulled back to 1979 lines. So he seems to constantly increase his own demands. Um, how far can the EU go and how far should the EU go when it comes to agreeing to some of these demands? The great questions, and actually there was a lot to sort of chew on in, in, in Steve's remarks as well. So let me just react to some of those bits and pieces sure. and, and try to tie it all together. Um, so, so one interesting point that, that Steve raised was this question of divergence between the United States and Europe. Um, obviously, there is a very strong goalist, if you will, streak to, to Macron's thinking and to French foreign policy tradition. Uh, more broadly, uh, but, but if anything, uh, and particularly in contrast to to the shambolic nature of the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, there has been really an unprecedented degree of sort of transatlantic cooperation and working together on 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 Ukraine, and and so I think I would I would sort of see even even this 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 outreach by by Macron in 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 those terms as as something that has been actually discussed with Washington and in which there is a sort of you know bad cop good cop division of of labor between between different leaders with Washington playing the role of of, of the sort of deterrent force and and then you know you have various attempts at diplomacy and engagement coming from from various various European uh, European capitals. Whether this works is you know, very much an open question and well, devil is in the details. I see you know, Finlandization as, uh, as a sort of deeply unattractive option for, for the Ukrainians themselves. Yeah, you know, had all sorts of things happening in Finland during the Cold War from censorship to having effectively Russia, Soviet emissaries having veto power over, over all sorts of policies, you know, school textbooks being sent to <laughs> Moscow for, for approval and so on and, and so forth. Uh, but I think that we sort of like disagree fundamentally, Steve and I, is, is this question of whether really geography and the sort of structural uh, characteristics of countries, like where they are and who are their neighbors, uh, come first or whether they those things can be you know sort of affected by by by, by policy choices and i come strongly on the side of, of 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 those who believe that those things are not really destiny that you can change geopolitical reality and you see that with poland you see that with the baltic states which would be you know by their nature part of the russian sphere of influence i mean they are very difficult to defend uh we can, you know, invade and occupy Estonia in a, over a weekend, if you, if you're, if you're, if you're the Kremlin. Yet, you know, they do have these tripwires uh, built into them that I think are very credible. I don't think Estonians have to sort of, you know, wake up at night worrying about about Russians coming in because, you know, even even that sort of symbolic American presence uh, is 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 an effective 
is an effective uh, deterrent. In the case of Ukraine, there is no such tripwire. And we can sort of, you know, think about the counterfactual history after 2008, if, you know, the, the Bucharest summit went, went differently. Uh, but, but it's almost sort of irrelevant because Ukrainians themselves are, you know, they, they've proven it. They are willing to defend themselves. They don't want to be part of the Russian sphere of influence. Putin tried bribery, corruption, you know, annexing part of part of Ukraine, uh, energy dependence hasn't worked, tried, you know, brute power. And, and now he's effectively asking the West to gift him Ukraine as part of his own sphere of influence. And I think it would be, you know, a bad thing for Ukraine if we did it. And it would be more importantly, a very bad thing for the for the West itself, uh, for, for, for Europeans. And and Americans with repercussions in Europe and 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 possibly 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 elsewhere. Uh, and, and I think it, it matters both in the sort of narrow sense that Ukraine is a nation of 40 million people at, at Europe's doorstep, at the EU's doorstep, you know, bordering with Poland, Slovakia. You know, think about the refugees. Think about the sort of you know getting that sort of additional freedom of action for for Putin. What it would mean in practical terms for. For, for 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 Europe, I think that's that's itself very dangerous. But in the broader sense, I think it's even worse. Really, putting that nail in the coffin of the rules-based order, if you will, uh, in which borders don't get redrawn by force, would be you know disastrous. I mean, you Adam come from a country where you know people hang pictures of Greater Hungary on the wall and think about you know about what cities could possibly be <laughs> be uh, you know made part of of, of Hungary again and and, and, so <coughs> and so forth. In, 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 in Beijing, there is a dictator who would like to reunify his country with, 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 with Taiwan. Uh, I think, you know, not helping Ukrainians defend themselves uh, would, would send a strong signal that, 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 that the, the lot is, a lot in the world is now up for grabs. And again, like I'm not advocating that NATO soldiers go and fight for Ukraine, um, nobody sensible, not even Ukrainians themselves would want, you know, Americans to, to come and, and, and defend Ukraine. Uh, the question is whether we are willing to do, you know, things that might cost us uh, a little bit to, to set Ukraine for success. And I'm, I'm saying very emphatically that we should. Sure. So in three sentences, what are the three kind of concrete things that we can and should do to de-escalate the situation and help Ukraine today? Uh, Delabor, you first, and then same question to Steve afterwards. Um, I think much of what's being done is helpful, strengthening NATO's eastern flank, uh, sending, you know, lethal military aid training to, to, to Ukrainians, there's Florida National Guard trainers working with, with Ukrainian troops, there are British trainers in Ukraine. Uh, all of that is good. Committing to really devastating sanctions on, on Russia that might actually have economic costs on, on the West as well uh, is, is you know, part of that deterrent that, that we should be willing and, 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 and ready to use. And of course, I'm not against the engagement. I mean, Cold War was won through a uh, combination of deterrence and, and engagement. And, and, and obviously, uh, it is important to signal that this is not about the West's adversarial relationship with Russia per se, but it's really about the West and Ukraine responding to aggressive moves of the current Kremlin regime. Sure. So, Steve, what are your three actions to de-escalate uh, the situation and right. help Ukraine? 
the, po the, the point is that we have a limited range of choices open to us now. Um, what, what we should, we should certainly do what Dalibor says and threaten, credibly threaten, very, very painful sanctions, which would hurt us, but we should certainly threaten them to make Putin be, you know, realise that he is not going to get away with this uh, lightly, as I'm sure he is aware, actually. I'm sure his military men are also telling him that the military cost because of Ukrainian resistance would be very high. However, I think that with the second thing we would have to do is we, we will have to, I think, cut a kind of deal uh, with, uh, the, with the Russians, which will uh, undoubtedly, because of our folly, be seen as uh, giving Putin a win. What we must do at the same time with that, though, is make it very, cl very clear uh, that there are all sorts of red lines elsewhere which would actually provoke a military confrontation, which you know, we obviously doesn't want to avoid. And then the third thing I think we should do is think about how do we uh, turn this to our advantage? Um, Reculer pour mieux saute, as the French put it, you know, the old chess term for the knight's move, where, and that I think is things like um, really looking to strengthen uh, Ukraine economically and in all sorts of other ways through all kinds of assistance, civil society, but above all, not just assistance done by government. I don't think you want more stuff by the USAID and other, you know, organizations which are believed to have a connection with Langley, Virginia, rightly or wrongly. Um, what you need to have is a lot more massive civil society and commercial support for you. Ukraine and for people in Ukraine to build up what, as Dalibor said a while ago, is the thing that Putin is more worried about than almost anything else, which is a functioning and prosperous liberal democracy in a Russian-speaking or very closely Russian-speaking part of the world uh, that's a threat to the kind of order he has. So I think we those are the three things we should do. We should make credible threats about non-military responses to any actual Russian invasion or incursion. We probably do have to strike a, a not very good deal right now, I think, as facing up to the fact that we've got ourselves into a, a bit of a, you know, a weak position, so we say, because what we're not prepared to do. But thirdly, we should think very seriously about what we can do going forward to uh, turn this to our advantage. But I would add, by the way, I, I, if I could just say this quickly, Dalibor correctly identifies the difference between us. I do believe in geopolitics ultimately, but also, sadly, I think that the rules-based international order is already uh, in very, very bad shape. And I'm not at all sure it's going to survive. I think we are, in fact, moving into the world, something like the 19th century world. Uh, rather than the supposedly 20th century one or 21st century one. On that very bleak note, I'm afraid I will need to thank you for your fantastic insights. Um, I really enjoyed the discussion. And I also sincerely hope that our Ukrainian friends will be able to continue on their peaceful and prosperous, prosperous route of development and also start the same process in Russia. Uh, I mean, nothing lasts forever and neither will Mr. Putin's reign. Um, but at least in the interim, I do hope that the European powers will be able to find a way to peacefully enable uh, the prospering of Ukraine and to deal with Russia simultaneously. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for the discussion. Um, thank you so much to our viewers who have joined us today as well. Uh, let us know your thoughts in the comments section below or on Twitter at iLondon. Um, thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you in two weeks' time again.